Someone wrote, the other day I ventured over to the How Stuff Works website. Name the invention, the machine, tradition, or process, and this site will tell you how it works. I was interested in car maintenance and what to look for that would indicate my car needed attention. The following question was listed at the How Stuff Works website. How do I know when my car needs to be realigned? Now, quoting from the site, you're wondering whether your car needs an alignment. First, look at your tires. Uneven tire wear, often more wear on the outside of some tires, is a prime indicator that your car is likely out of alignment. Here are a few more indicators. Your car seems to be drifting to one side even when you think you're driving straight. Your steering wheel vibrates. You're driving straight, but your steering wheel isn't centered. An out-of-alignment car is a common result of everyday driving, but the term alignment doesn't really refer to your car's wheels but rather to the suspension. As part of normal driving, parts of your car's suspension may become worn and springs can be stretched out. Even a small accident or bumping a curb can disrupt your suspension, knocking some of the highly calibrated components off kilter, making your wheels sit at improper angles. An alignment restores these angles to their correct measurements, making sure that your wheels sit straight. An alignment will ensure that your car drives straight and handles properly, making your ride safer. You'll also get better gas mileage because your tires will be properly aligned with the road, decreasing resistance. So we can easily see the importance of having your car's suspension in alignment. But what about spiritual alignment? If physical alignment is of utmost importance to your car, spiritual alignment is of utmost importance to your spiritual life. You see, as we go through life with its many twists and turns, and we allow the trials and hard experiences we go through or observe in others to shape our thinking and theology instead of grounding ourselves in God's Word, some of our biblical principles and theological understanding get skewed and misaligned. And that's why it's important to be in alignment from the inside out to ensure that there is true alignment. Back to the car analogy. It's more than simply changing out the tires. It's actually fixing the suspension system to make sure the tires are properly aligned to the road. In the same way, we need to go back to God's Word to align our thinking with the Lord's truth to make sure how we live our lives is consistent with biblical principles to ensure we are unshakable in this challenging and changing world. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of 1 John as we continue our series titled, Unshakable. We're going to be studying 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, to chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, to chapter 5, verse 13, as we know three spiritual alignment checks to make sure we're hitting at all cylinders spiritually. I read now verses 20 to 21 of chapter 4. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Here John begins this section by pointing out a hypocrisy that we are often guilty of, where we say that we love God, but we hate a fellow Christian. If this is the case, we would then be someone who's making a false claim, because love for God is to be expressed in love for others. This is in fact a command of God and not merely a suggestion. And if we love God, then we are to obey His command to love one another. The logical argument is this. If you love God and He tells you to do something, 
out of love for Him, you are to do it, or else your words of love would be empty words. So, for example, you tell your wife that you love her with an everlasting love, and you would be willing to do anything for her. But then she asks you to wash the dishes to express your love for her in action. But you tell her you can't because you don't like to get your hands wet. Then your actions would betray your words of love for your wife. Similarly, that is the argument that John is making here in these two verses about us loving God and Him telling us to love one another, but we not doing it. I read now verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Here in the first phrase of verse 1 is one of the clearest and simplest statements of how one is saved. One simply has to truly believe Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, is the Christ, meaning the Savior, the one who saves us by dying in our place. There is no works involved for us to be saved. There is nothing we have to do other than to believe by faith. And in the same verse, John reiterates the idea that someone who loves God because he or she is a child of God should also love others as they are also children of God in obedience to His commandments. Now look at verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. John stresses again very clearly that love for God is expressed in action, specifically in obedience to His commandments. And in this context, it is to love one another. But generally in our application, it is to follow all of God's commandments. But would you highlight that last phrase in verse 3? His commandments are not burdensome. For someone who loves God, obeying His commandments is not an issue, not something that is oppressive, something we dread doing. It isn't taxing or worrying. You know, sadly for many people, God's commands in the Bible seem for them to be a burden. They see it as restricting the joys of their lives and tying them down and making their lives miserable. It is a daily heavy burden for them to live out God's commands. They don't see the commands from a loving God as something of great benefit for them. But my friends, God's commands are not burdensome when we have an intimate relationship with God and when we love God with all of our hearts. You see, there's a big difference in your attitude if you do something for someone you love versus doing something for someone whom you don't know. For example, if your child asks you to help her with a school project, as a loving parent, you will do so, buying supplies for her project and spending hours assisting her. But if a random child whom you don't know comes up to you to ask you to help him on his school project, you may do it out of pity or because others are watching and observing you, but deep down inside, I'm sure you would be grumbling about why you're doing this and has become a burden for you. Another example is when young couples are dating and they are deeply in love. The guy will often drive an hour out of the way just to pick up his girlfriend at her house to bring them somewhere without batting an eyelash. I know of married couples so deeply in love that the husband will brave the horrendous Manila traffic just to drive his wife to work every day and pick her up from work every day, rain or shine. They enjoy their time together in the car, and it is not a burden because they are in love and have an intimate relationship with one another. 
Hopefully you can see now how love changes the equation of what is a burden and what is not. So if you say that you love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, then when He asks us to do something in His written Word, the Bible, then it should not be a burden for us. We should happily want to follow in obedience. You see, here is our alignment check number one. Obedience is not a burden when we are obeying someone we truly love. Obedience is not a burden when we are obeying someone we truly love. This statement both serves as a principle and as a spiritual alignment question and recalibration check. Is living out Christian principles as prescribed in the Bible a hardship and burden for us, or is it not? If it's a burden, then perhaps we need to check our hearts to see if we are in an intimate, loving relationship with Jesus. You see, if the one we truly love tells us to do something, we will do it with joy. We express love in our obedience. In her book, Tramp for the Lord, Corrie Ten Boom tells the story of an old woman she met in Russia in the time of the communist persecution of Christians during the Cold War. The old woman was lying on a small sofa propped up by pillows. Her body was bent and twisted almost beyond recognition by the dreaded disease of multiple sclerosis. Her aged husband spent all of his time taking care of her since she wasn't able to move off the sofa. The only part of her body she could control was her right hand. And with the index finger of that hand, she had for many years glorified God by typing on a vintage typewriter beside her. All day and far into the night, she would type. She translated Christian books into Russian, always using just that one finger, peck, peck, peck. She typed out pages, peck, peck, peck. She would type out portions of the Bible, the books of Billy Graham, and even the books of Corey Ten Boom. Not only does she translate books, her husband said as he hovered close by during our conversation, but she prays for these people every day while she types. Sometimes it takes a long time for her finger to hit the key or for her to get the paper in the machine, but all the time she's praying for those whose books she's working on and translating. Cory Ten Boom writes, I looked at her wasted form on that sofa, her head pulled down and her feet curled under her body. Oh, Lord, why don't you heal her? I cried inwardly. Her husband, sensing my anguish of soul, gave the answer. Corey, he said, God is a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched by the secret police, but because she has been sick for so long, no one ever looks in on her. They leave us alone, and she's the only person in, in the entire city who can type quietly and translate these Christian books into Russian undetected by the police. It's inaccurate to say that God worked despite her weakness. The truth is that He was glorified through her weakness in a powerful way. You'd feel sorry for that woman, just as I would. But the very thing we'd wish and pray away, the very thing apparently destroying her life, the prickly thorn causing her so much pain, was a holy place that allowed a very weak woman to become a pillar of strength in God's kingdom. Indeed, my friends, living faithfully in obedience to the Lord, it's not a burden we bear. It's not a burden when we are obeying someone we truly love. There's another reason for why the commands of God are not a burden, and it's because we have victory through faith in Jesus Christ. 
the object of our faith is in someone victorious. When you always come out winning, then following the commands, knowing it will lead to victory, will not be a burden. Look at verses 4 to 6. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Here John tells us very clearly that we as Christians who have placed our trust and faith in Jesus Christ have victory and can overcome the world not because of our own power, but because of the divine Jesus who is the Son of God, God Himself. In verse 6, the water referenced here most likely refers to Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist to begin His earthly ministry. And the blood refers to Jesus' death on the cross and His blood shed for the remission of sin. So the referencing of water and blood serves as a bookend for the totality of the ministry of Jesus from His messages to His miracles culminating at His crucifixion, the climax of His earthly ministry. With God the Holy Spirit serving to confirm that all that has been said and done is true. It is in this Jesus in whom we place our faith that gives us a victory. Now, the reason John has to delineate with clarity the bookend of Jesus' life and ministry was because there were false teachers, mainly Gnostic heretics like Serinthus, running around who taught that the divine Son of God descended upon the human Jesus at His baptism, but left Him before the crucifixion, meaning a divine Jesus did not die for mankind, all of which is untrue. And therefore, believing in this Gnostic false Jesus would not save. And that's why John had to refute clearly and boldly this heresy. Look at verses 7 and 8. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. The Bible tells us in heaven, the triune God, Father, Son, described here as the Logos or the Word, as John also describes the Son in his gospel, and the Holy Spirit affirms the truth of the Son. And on earth, the Spirit, through the teaching ministry of the apostles, the water, which is the earthly ministry of Jesus, and the blood, His death on the cross, also speak in one voice as to the truth of the person, words, and works of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the point of all of this is that we don't have to worry about placing as the object of our faith our trust in Jesus Christ as both heaven and earth testify and witness to the truthfulness of His claims and actions. You see, it's important that you have the right object of faith, and more importantly, the right Savior in whom you place your faith. Placing your faith in the wrong object of faith will not garner you victory, but only disappointment and loss. If the object of your faith is in wealth, prestige, education, or even through living a morally good life, to define for yourself a successful life, or more importantly, to get yourself eternal life at the end of this earthly life, then the object of your faith is misplaced. Let me explain. If the object of your faith is wealth, meaning you trust wealth for success in life or to define success in life, and if I were to ask you, how much money do you need to consider your life successful, what would be your answer? 
Does it mean that if you aren't on Fortune's list of the 100 most wealthy people on earth, then your life is a failure? That means almost everyone's life on this earth is a failure except the 100 on that list. Also, how much money do you need to buy yourself eternal life? If the object of your faith is fame, how much prestige and fame do you need to be considered successful? How much prestige and fame do you need to consider your life successful? Does it mean that if you aren't headlining a movie or the CEO of a multinational company, then your life is a failure? Also, how famous do you need to be to convince God to let you into heaven? If you put knowledge and education at the pinnacle of your trust, meaning you only trust knowledge, let me ask you, how many educational degrees do you need for the world to consider your life a success or for you to consider your life a success? Does it mean that if you don't have a doctoral degree in every field of education, then you aren't a success but a failure? Also, how smart do you have to be to convince God that you are worth letting into heaven? Or if the measure of your success is measured by how morally good you are, how morally good do you have to be to have the world consider you a success? Isn't it that the world tells us that the good guys finish last? And by the way, whose standard is it that gets to define how good good is? But if you are true to yourself, do people know about all of the evil thoughts in your hearts and mind? And if you define good by your own standard, isn't that self-serving? Because how good do you have to be to enter heaven? The Bible says you have to be perfect, and no one measures up to that standard. So who or what is the object of your faith? Where do you place your trust? In yourself, in others, in wealth, or in the one true God? It should be very obvious that any object that we place our trust and faith in to define success and to get us eternal life apart from Jesus is ineffective to get us what we truly want. In fact, this pandemic has shown that the virus doesn't care how much money you have, how famous you are, how many educational degrees you have, or how morally good you are. Everyone has been affected. In the same way, God's standard for judging sin is the same for all, regardless of income, social economic level, education, and moral status. So, my friends, how have you taken care of your sin problem? Only in the Son of God do we find salvation because Jesus Christ paid the price for sin for all people, regardless of income, social, educational, and moral status. From the poorest person to the unknown, to the uneducated, to the murderers, to the worst of sinners and the worst of criminals, there is salvation available for all through Jesus so that everyone can end this life as truly successful people and gain eternal life. You see, only in the right object of faith and trust do we secure victory in this world and true success in life. And this is our alignment check number two. Only through trusting Jesus as the object of our faith do we find true success and victory. Only through trusting Jesus Christ as the object of our faith do we find true success and victory. The question of alignment for each one of us is this. While we claim to trust the Lord, what is it we really place our trust in? If it's anything other than the Lord, then we need to realign and recalibrate to wean ourselves away from those things. Also, is our trust really in the Lord alone or on other things, but the Lord is somehow somewhere in the equation? So we are trusting two things. 
but you and I can only place our trust in one thing. You can't say, I trust God, and I also trust in my wealth, because fundamentally, both have different desires. The Bible is very clear on this. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and wealth, or God and fame, or God and education, or God and your altruistic advocacies. You and I can only choose one person to trust and to live this life for. And if the choice is to trust God alone in our lives, then His commands are no longer burdens to us because we acknowledge His commands for our lives is for our good. You know, my friends, we obey God's commands because we trust that they are for our good. We trust God. That's why we obey God's commands. Trust and obedience go hand in hand, and it is in that confluence of trust in God and obedience to His commands where we find joy. As Tim Hansel writes, one day while my son Zach and I were out in the country climbing around in some cliffs, I heard a voice from above me yell, Hey, Dad, catch me! I turned around to see Zach joyfully jumping off a rock straight at me. He had jumped and then yelled, Hey, Dad! I became an instant circus act catching him. We both fell to the ground. For a moment after I caught him, I could hardly talk. When I found my voice again, I gasped in exasperation, Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? He responded with remarkable calmness, sure, because you're my dad. His whole assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live life to the hilt because I could be trusted. Isn't that even more true for a Christian? It is in that freedom and joy that we can simply yell, Hey, Heavenly Dad, catch me! And He always does because our God is trustworthy. Indeed, my friends, only through trusting Jesus as the object of our faith do we find true success, victory, and joy. I read now verses 9 and 10. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which He has testified of His Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. In verse 9, John makes the point that if we generally believe the words of man as truth, how much more the Word of God coming through various channels should be accepted, especially as it concerns his own Son. Then in verse 10, John states that those who reject Jesus as the Son of God is making God out to be a liar because this is God's own declaration of His Son. Verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It seems in verses 11 and 12 that there were false teachers in John's time who were wrongly advocating the believing in God and in His Son, Jesus, did not grant eternal life. But John was adamant, God gives eternal life, and it is only through Jesus. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. It could not be made any more clear. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And in verse 13, John sums it all up. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John was telling the Christian readers, I've written this section 
to assure you who have placed your trust in Jesus that you have eternal life so that you can keep the faith and persevere through the challenges of life. Don't listen to the deceivers and the false teachers that you don't have eternal life. You have it, and it should be the basis for the hope that you have to live this life. You see, my friends, the motivation of how we live this life is often tied down to the reward we are anticipating in the future. For example, students study hard so that they can graduate. Some students study even harder so that they can graduate with honors. Some working professionals put in long hours so that they can quickly climb the corporate ladder, working and aiming for a promotion and a salary raise. Others work hard and save and accumulate so that they can buy things that they like, like a new car, a new watch, or a new phone. Still others put in hard work of waking up early in the morning to work out and to exercise so that they can have a better-looking body. We're all motivated by the reward we hope to get. Christians who have placed their trust in Jesus have the hope of eternal life and with it eternal rewards as the motivation for how we live this life. So we don't mind drawing the short end of the stick and being disadvantaged in this life or letting people take advantage of us in this life because we're playing the long game and living for eternity because we know that eternal life is ours. So you can imagine when some Christians who were living in John's time and even today heard or hear that believing in Christ doesn't get you eternal life, it would shake their purpose and confidence in how they live their lives. So they will begin to wonder why they're putting in so much effort to live Christ-like lives and showing love to one another. That's why John had to quickly come in and refute these false teachings and to reaffirm in the clearest and the strongest of terms that believing in Jesus Christ gives one eternal life. And to say otherwise is to call God a liar. Because John knows that when we have our hearts and minds set heavenward, focused on our life with Christ in glory, then it will fundamentally change the way we live in the present life. You see, alignment check number three. Focusing on our eternal life in Christ keeps us unshakable in changing times. Focusing on our eternal life in Christ keeps us unshakable in changing times. We all need to have the right focus and mindset for the prize we live for. So, my friends, do we live for the temporary or do we live for the eternal? I remember the story of a Mr. Bailey who was a successful businessman who, after parking his car, had it bumped into by the car of a nicely dressed man. Although there was barely a scratch, the man insisted on making amends through paying for damages as well as two tickets to a local play. After giving the gentleman his address, Mr. Bailey didn't think anything of it until a few weeks later when two tickets arrived for the local play with specific seating up in the front, VIP seating, plus a gift certificate for two to a nice dinner at an expensive restaurant. It was a great evening out for Bailey and his wife. This until they came back home to find out that they'd been duped by this slick thief who completely emptied their house and had robbed it. They got sucker punched because they didn't understand the schemes of this thief. In much the same way, Christians are ignorant of Satan's scheme to move us out from what God wants us to focus on, which is on eternity, and to be blinded by the temporary offers of this world, and thus allowing Him to move in and steal our joy and purpose. My friends, don't lose sight of the goal. We have eternal life in Christ. 
We don't need to follow the world's offers, however good it sounds, because it's all temporary. Focusing on our eternal life in Christ keeps us unshakable in these changing times. Let me end with this story. A missionary couple once brought some African pastors to the United States for a big meeting. During their free time, these pastors wanted to do a little shopping. Even though they were in a small town, the missionary knew there was a chance one of them might have some difficulty finding their way around or get lost. So the missionary gave each pastor his phone number in case of an emergency. In less than an hour, the missionary's phone rang, and one of the pastors said, I am lost. The missionary replied, lay the phone down, go to the street corner, find the names of the two street, and come back and tell me. In a few minutes, the African pastor returned and reported, I'm at the corner of walk and don't walk. When the hardships and trials of life come, we often feel lost and unstable. We feel directionless, and we don't know which way to turn because we are spiritually misaligned. Walk or don't walk, do or not do. And add to that the confusion of the world's ungodly advice and secular culture during these times, which often and subtly change our thinking and perspective. It is in those times we need a spiritual alignment check. Spiritual alignment checks are important. The famed preacher J. Oswald Sander writes, I ask myself every three months, Sanders, are you more like Christ than you were three months ago? Are you more loving, more kind, more patient? His concern was to be more Christ-like in his character. In this section of 1 John, he gives us some principles that naturally lead to some self-diagnostic spiritual alignment questions. Alignment check number one. Obedience is not a burden when we are obeying someone we truly love. What's your attitude towards the commands of God in the Bible? Alignment check number two. Only through trusting Jesus Christ as the object of our faith do we find true success and victory. Whom are you trusting? Are you trusting in the Lord alone? Alignment check number three. Focusing on our eternal lives in Christ keeps us unshakable in changing times. Do you have a heavenly mindset? Are you focused on eternity? My friends, I hope each and every one of us will take the time to do a spiritual alignment check to make sure that our lives are lived in alignment with the Scriptures because of the subtle attacks of Satan and the culture of this world often our perspective in this life is skewed. And so it's vitally important that we do this spiritual alignment test to make sure that we are living our lives fully for God's glory until the day we see Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for reminding us that we all need to stop and consult the Scriptures to make sure that the life we live is in accordance with Your will. Father, oftentimes we admit that You are not solely the object of our worship, and the object of our faith. And we need to return back to you so that we can have a mindset that is heavenward and to accept your commands as something that is not a burden, but something for our good, for our enjoyment. May we be aligned to the scriptural principles that you have set forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.